Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Command Space. I'm your host, Mike Hurley, and I'm very honoured to be joined today by Gina Trapani. Hi, Gina. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. I, I love the show, so I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, thank you. That's very, very kind of you. You're my first female guest, which is it's a terrible shame that there aren't more um, that I can say that I've I cannot say that I've interviewed more women, and it's a it's a shame, and it's something I want to change. Well, episode twenty four, not so bad. Yeah, you know, th- this I'll, show. I'll send you some names. Please, I would like that. I mean, this kind of feeds in from uh, your episode of the crossover that you did quite recently on Five by Five, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. That was a fun uh, conversation. It was funny. We it was with Jen Simmons, myself, and Dan Benjamin. And Dan was like, "Well, we've got two women here, actually three, because his producer Hattie Cook was there as well. Like, let's talk about being women, <laughs> Zach." And I was like, "Well, okay." <laughs> Dan Dan is very qualified to talk about that. Yes, yeah, he is. <laughs> so, Gina, why, why don't you tell people, um, for anybody that doesn't know, what do you like to be known for? Oh, what what do I like to be known for? That's mm-hmm. a that's a good question. So there's like what I'm actually known for and what I'd like to be known for. I, I think um I think I'd like to think of myself as someone who just makes who makes software. Uh so I like to be thought of as an app developer or just a software developer for the most part. Um although I'm I'm kind of known for uh being a blogger, uh doing life hacker and podcasting because I'm I, I happen to be doing three shows at the moment kind of accidentally. Uh but but I, I like that I identify as a maker more than anything. A maker, I like that. That's, I think that on the internet these days, um, I think that we all like to consider ourselves as makers and creators. Um, yes, and it's interesting um, the things that we do make because typically they are not tangible things, but we still consider it making. Which yeah, is, which is an yeah. interesting subject all on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, you mentioned that you were known for blogging. Um, and I don't. I, I said to you before the show, to, just to, in case you were concerned, because it was an interview that I was going to spend forty-five minutes talking to you about Lifehacker, but I don't want to do that. Um, okay. and, and that's maybe what a lot of people know you for. So yes. you you uh, you started Lifehacker, which I think most people will know now um, as like a productivity blog, and it was very different when you started it. And most of the interviews that I've ever heard of you, you talk a lot about that. But um, I don't really want to ask you anything about Lifehacker per se, but I just wondered, you know, because that's a, that's a very demanding job to run a, a blog like that. You know, you're working all hours and writing and writing all day. And I just wonder if there's any part of you that misses that life. You know, there, there, I do miss it. There are parts of it that I really miss and parts of it that I don't. Um, the, the the part that I miss is that at the end of the day at Lifehacker, I had, you know, we had 20-something posts published. You know, I, I met 20 deadlines. I shipped 20 things. And, uh, and I got immediate feedback from those things, whether it was comments or emails or a traffic, page view traffic chart. It was instant feedback and, and, and constant shipping. And I, I really like that. I enjoy shipping. I like to say, here's a new thing that I made. And that gives me just deep satisfaction. So, when you're working on something that's a little more long term and not doesn't involve publishing 20 times a day or 12 times a day, you you and the feedback isn't as immediate. It's a it's a, it's a little more kind of lonely. It's less of a grind, but it's a little bit more uh, lonely. So I, I miss the kind of constant conversation with the community uh, on Lifehacker and this idea of just publishing. You know, constantly publishing. I, I find blogging very difficult right now uh, after years of you know pushing out dozens of posts a day I, now i have I, I agonize over the smallest post from my own blog so i don't know if that's burnout or if i just got out of that rhythm of constantly publishing 
that's kind of I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before on some of the shows um, that's the main reason why I could never block um, I, I agonise far too much over the written word because mm-hmm. because you have the ability to change it very easily without anybody knowing about it but yeah. what I love about the spoken word and we're, we're going to talk about your podcasting uh, that you do um, a little later on in the show um, but w- what I love about podcasting is if I say something I have said it and it would be extremely difficult to go out to go back and edit specific words. Like I just made a mistake there, but I'm just going to carry on, just go mm-hmm. over it. Where if I was writing, I would have gone back and changed that. And, right. And that's what I like about podcasting is it's just committed to tape. People expect to hear mistakes, and and I don't get emails telling me about miss things that I've misspoken, like you would about typos. And and I just like that the way that things are created. I like the way of. of vocally creating rather than writing mm-hmm. so yeah it makes a lot of sense it's it's fun and, and i guess when we talk about podcasting I'll, I'll see if that's the sort of thing that you do but you do have a blog um smarterware.org um where where what does this blog where does it fit for you like what what does it satisfy yeah it's, it's sort of been sadly neglected through most of, of 2012 um you know i've never not had a blog i i started blogging in 2001 uh right around september 11th i lived in manhattan at the time and and i've been writing and before that i kept journals i've just always sort of wrote kind of compulsively really just kind of understand the world i, I needed a place to write write things and um so i had my personal blog there for a while then i did did life hacker and now smart aware is just kind of like I, it's my place to park Park ideas that I need to flesh out that I don't want to entrust to Google Plus or Facebook or Twitter or you know I, I, it's more than 140 characters and some place that an essay kind of link thing that I want to be able to refer back to easily. So I haven't been blogging as much as I would like. I I, I have been sort of living inside my head more than I would like. I think that blogging is a really good way to to clarify your thinking. And when you do it publicly, you invite feedback, and you get feedback, and you can clarify it even more. And uh, it's just it's a lot of work. It's tiring. It's tiring. And now that I'm doing my shows, <laughs> it's much easier to kind of have these conversations over voice and on the show. And then I kind of feel I, I lose the, I, I lose the motivation to, to do the writing. Yeah. So I guess really smart aware now is kind of just Gina's personal blog, right? It's where you announce things and, and talk about your, your child. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. And, and, you know, you just sort of make your personal announcements, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not blogging about, um, you know, my kid too much. I mean, my kid was just born a few months ago, but I, it's not, it's not personal in that I'm not writing a journal of, of my life. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's kind of like tech commentary or there's some tech commentary, but, uh, kind of where my tech commentary meets meets my life, so I guess it's personal in that sense. Yeah, indeed. So, your your one of your current projects um, is an application that you've written called To Do Dot Text, um, mm-hmm. and it originally was on Android, and it's now on iOS. And I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. Um, but I just wonder what what happened in your life that inspired you to create this application. <sighs> Well, I reviewed dozens and dozens of to-do list applications uh, writing in the course of writing Lifehacker, which was a blog about productivity software. So I just constantly, every week, there was a heyday, there was a time, I want to say it was like 2005, 2006, where just every week there was a new to-do to to-do app, generally web-based because it was kind of the boom, the web 2.0 boom. And I, you know, I tried them all and, and, they were, and most of them were quite wonderful and had lots of you know, labels and due dates and, you know, ways to assign things and organize and, and, and varying levels of complexity. And, 
you know, I'm writing about productivity software. I had read Getting Things Done. I consider myself a fairly organized person. And I found that I just kept going back to this file called todo.txt that I kept on my desktop, on my computer desktop, that I just wanted to type into a plain text file. Part of this is just that I, I lived in a text editor. I, I enjoy working in text editors. And, um, and also, some of my, a lot of my to-dos felt very personal. and I didn't want to entrust them to you know, a web app that I didn't know was going to be around for another year or that had some sort of complicated workflow that I wouldn't be able to export and import someplace else. There isn't really a standard format for to-dos, you know, unlike calendar, which is like ICS or email. Um, there, aren't, there, aren't, there isn't a standard format for, for to-dos. So I had this to-do.txt file that I kept on my desktop. And finally, I was just like, you know what? I, I'm just, I want to be able to just use this file as my to-do list. So um, I started writing a uh, command line script, like a bash script, that because I spent a lot of time in the terminal. I know this is this is getting really <laughs> nerdy, but I spent a lot of time in the terminal, and I wanted to be a, very easily from the terminal or from Quicksilver or you know really any place that you could just append a line to the tech, to, to a text file. I, I wanted to start u- using that to add to dos, and then I kind of came up with this you know little. Very simple format to mark to-dos as complete or to prioritize them. I want this to-do to shoot up to the top of my list when I sort it, when I sort the file. Uh, so so to-do text was born as a, as a command line interface, as a, as a bash script to, to manage your, your to-do list. And um, with, with the idea also that you can open up the list in any text file, in any text editor, and that it would be human readable as well, that it wouldn't be this, you know, some crazy csv or json or you know xml format that it would just be real real easy to read and so um then you know i was working across multiple machines so i started syncing i started just storing this file in dropbox it was the same everywhere and um this kind of community i open sourced the code and it's up on github and this community sprung up around it of of super duper command line nerds as you would expect and then, uh, you know, people said, well, I want this on my mobile device. I, you know, the problem with this is that I have to be at a computer to, to update it. So we, I was using Android at the time, and it sort of made sense because it was, very, it was an open source project, and it had a lot of sort of Unix types set, uh, surrounding it. So we released on Android first. And uh, the app is very simple. It just connects to Dropbox. It gets your to-do text file. It shows it to you in a list and on, on your mobile touchscreen device and lets you do things like mark things as complete or add new tasks. It's just a touch a list touch interface to a text file uh, and it syncs it back to Dropbox so you can get it wherever else. And so we, we released it on Android and we also released it on, on iOS. And I say we because it's an open source project. All the Android code and all the iOS code is on GitHub. And uh, truthfully, I have done some of the programming, but not all of it. It's, 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 a, it's really been a community effort. So you started it on Android because that was the the platform that you were using at the time. So for you, it just made sense. And as you say, it kind of being an open source project felt like it had a home there. Um, yeah. So what made what what was the decision like to bring it to iOS? Because it's now an iOS application as well. What went into that? I mean, it, it was exa- it, exactly what goes into really anything new that happens in the application. Somebody you know somebody posted the mailing list and was like, "I love this. I use it on my Mac. I I." I see that it's available for Android, but I have an iPhone or I have an iPad and I really want to get it on those devices. And then a bunch of people say, yeah, me too. And, yeah, me too. And then someone said, well, I'm willing to work on this. Can we just set up the project? So I said, well, okay. You know, and I fired up Xcode and you know, clicked new project and uploaded the, you know, the stubs to GitHub and said, go crazy. And then uh, you know, folks just started contributing to, to the app. So it was very much a kind of community, collaborative, open source thing. And I... I also had an iPad and, and um, 
I was like, oh, this would, you know, I'd have a lot more users, obviously, if it was, if I shipped it in the, in the app store. I was curious to know how well it would sell in the app store versus in the Play Store. Um, and so it just seemed like a kind of a fun, I had never done anything with Objective-C, which is the language you write iOS apps in. So I just thought, oh, this seems like an interesting learning experience. And so it kind of happened, kind of happened that way. So um, we like to take um, questions from our listeners on the show um, mm-hmm. and Chris Humphreys um, at Chris Humphreys underscore on Twitter has asked um, what were the challenges of programming for iOS with things like the Apple's approval process um, what was that like after being an Android developer oh it was a complete paradigm shift for me complete paradigm shift well first I'm a, I'm a Java developer first so developing for Android was which just came very naturally to me. I was like, oh, yes, this is the, this is the Java IDE. All the same tools that I had learned to write Java in are used to write Android apps. So, so from the, the code was, was very familiar looking to me. Because I was an Android user, all of the user conventions, the gestures, and the, 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 what, what you know, sort of the most popular apps did made sense. I understood them. Uh, so making the Android app was, made a lot of sense to me and, and, and worked. And then, you know, you, you finish building the app. We had a beta we just kind of I emailed out the APK, which is the kind of the executive of, executive file, to a bunch of people and said, "Hey, test this." We posted it to GitHub. You could just download it. You know, it's one of these things where you just distribute the app however you want. It's very free, and mm-hmm. you know, it's like okay, it's broke. You know, it's kind of broken, but just check it out. And we didn't have all of our <laughs> art done. It was you could. Android's a very open source thing where it's sort of like you know, we're, here's a beta, test it. We're going to iterate. On the iOS side, it's a completely different. Thing. I mean, I was absolutely a stranger in a strange land from the, like, I'd never laid eyes on Objective-C before from the code perspective. From the user perspective, I wasn't used to iOS's uh, sort of gestures and conventions around, you know, where does the search bar, bar go? Like, things like that. I, I just didn't didn't know. And then the approval process was was wild, too, because, you know, you really, you had to have a finished product. You had to have all your art, all your, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed. And you know, you just, you sweat it, you submit it, and then you just kind of sweat it out. And, and, and actually, I should say, prior to the App Store submission, I wanted people to beta test it, right? But, but Apple's got all these rules about how you distribute, distribute your apps. Like, it's not easy. You can't just email somebody a file and say, hey, install this on your iPhone. Uh, we wound up using an app called Test Flight. I don't know. Have you heard of Test Flight? Yeah, I've used Test Flight. Yeah, yeah. So that was also crazy. Like, you have to set up all these, um, I, I forget what they're called, but these basically tokens that say, yes, these devices are allowed. You have to get the device IDs from everybody. I was just, I was astounded and kind of appalled, I'll be honest, <laughs> by how difficult <laughs> Apple makes it for developers to get testers. And then and then just going through the approval process was sort of a nail-biting thing. I, I was a complete noob. I was sure that we had screwed something up bad enough to, to warrant a rejection. I was, wait, I was awaiting the rejection. Um, I was worrying about things like, you know, the radius on the rounded corners of our icon, uh, uh, which, you know, Apple has specifications about that. Things that I had didn't really have to think about with the, with the Android side, which is sort of a lot more free-flowing. And, um, and, and, and still, whenever we release a, a, an update to the iOS app, I still really resent that, that wait, uh, you know, for the approval. You know, the smallest little bug fix can take a week to get out to users because, because it just that's how long it took for the reviewers to get back to, get back to me. You've kind of confirmed my... Um, feelings and suspicions about it that the iOS system for development and, and approval and things are what well, is much more stressful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
But I wonder, are there, was there anything at all in in the creation of the iOS app which you wished was on Android? So did it, did anything go the other way for you? I I really uh, like Xcode a lot, which is the the development environment, the IDE that you you build iOS apps in. It's it's fast, it's slick. Um, the one that you use for Android is called Eclipse, and it's an it's an open source uh, um, IDE that runs on a bunch of different platforms, which is nice. But it's kind of slow and uh, kind of clunky, and the the interface isn't quite as nice. So and you know, look, I, I I had a pride about shipping my iOS app that I didn't have about the Android app because there was this barrier, you know, because it had to be approved. Um, and so and you know, and, and there are things about iOS which are just better looking than Android. I mean, Android's come a long way visually, but it's just it's just better looking. Even just the default, we we haven't done any crazy art. Right? It's the default UI widgets are just really nice looking. So you see, I wondered if because I know obviously a lot of people say that. Um, Apple give the ability. Well, it's easier to cre- people say that it's easier to create good-looking applications on iOS. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I I've, I am an Android user as well as an iOS user, and I'm definitely seeing that these days, um, when when real money is put into it, you can get excellent-looking applications on Android. I, I don't yes. think it's the same as it used to be. Um, but I just wonder because your app is quite visually basic because it's just a list. I just wondered if that sort of stuff played any any parts for you like i mean the the the, the basic tools that apple give for design um, like the buttons and things are they better than the ones on android is there a difference between that yeah i i think i think they are better um I, like I said, the, the, like you said, the app is very, very simple. It's just a list. Uh, but the, even the first couple of uh, versions of the Android app, you know, we, we would have dumb things which should never happen happen. Like the text box would be just a little wider than the screen, you know, so your you know your text would go off. I mean, that thing, that kind of thing, just should never happen. It should just absolutely, you know, automatically resize itself to the screen. So the tools have gotten a, a lot better for Android. But I do agree. I think that that's a that's a a statement I would agree with that it's easier to build better looking uh, iOS apps, even the most basic kind of just list view kind of apps uh, uh, by default. And, you know, that's, that doesn't surprise me, right? I mean, Apple's always sort of uh, prioritized design. I want to talk more uh, with you about Android actually, but I have a couple more questions in regards to the to do um, text and to do systems in general. So we'll get back to Android in a moment. Um, yep. a, another listener, Tweston Kendall on Twitter, has asked, How are you currently using to do.txt? Like, do you use the apps? Are you still doing it all in the command line? Um, all of the above. Yeah, I use it on the command line. I spend a lot of time in the terminal, just day to day stuff. So I use it on the command line when I'm at my computer at a full keyboard. Uh, I use it on my my current phone as a Galaxy Nexus running Jelly Bean. So I use the app there. I've also got a Nexus Seven and I've got an iPad. I use the I use the app on those as well. And sometimes when I'm doing like a full weekly review where I just want to pull up my entire to do list and go through the entire thing and do batch operations like moving a bunch of lines here and there or just kind of getting the broad overview, you know, I'll, I'll open my to-do text in TextMate um, and uh, just work with it, you know, just in a regular text editor. So, yeah, I, I live by it. I've got a – so the, the part of the, what the app does is that when you complete a task, it archives that task to done.txt. Uh, so I've got – I've got – I haven't checked recently, but, I mean, I've got 20,000 line done.txt since, like, wow. you know, 
2007, it's, which is, which is kind of nice. It's this, you know, very greppable log of, you know, all the stuff that's been kind of, that I've been, you know, thought was worthy of actually putting, putting down in my to-do text and then completing, you know, for, I guess, almost six years now, uh, which, which I really like about, about the app as well is that you get that archive. You really aren't getting things done. Aren't you? Like, I mean, that's showing it, isn't it? The, the bigger that file gets, the more stuff you are getting done. <laughs> yeah, you know, in in the app, like you can you can mark things as complete and kind of keep them there on your list, and, and they're just sort of crossed off. Or you can just say, "Hey, automatically archive to done.txt." I actually like to keep them like marked as complete on my list because I like to see complete things, <laughs> and then I like to cl- like tap on the archive button so I can see them sort of like shuttled off to done.txt. Like I t- I take a lot of pleasure in that like that done that done list. Uh, um, that, that it motivates me. It makes me feel accomplished for the day. It's, it should do. Um- Alan Ed at Alan Ed has asked if you have any thoughts on the sort of the future for to do systems like GTD. Do you think that there will be other things? Do you think that there, there that maybe like the applications that we've got now are going to go beyond that? Like, do you have thoughts around this sort of stuff? You know, I've had people say to me, hey, you should try to turn the to-do text uh, format into a standard uh, that, you know, that all, I mean, my wish is that there would be a standard for to-do lists so that you could import or export them into different different systems if you want to use a different system. There are a lot of to-do, I'll, I'll be honest, there are lots of to-do apps, especially mobile apps, which have uh, much cleaner interface or much better interface or, or fancier or more visually pleasing than, than to do that text. Um, but the thing, the thing that I don't like is that you're sort of locking your, your data into, to this, this particular, um, um, app. So I'd like to see a standard where, you know, you can export and import and, and move your to-do list around. I haven't like the, the idea of, of trying to get my format or, or some sort of standard formalized, it just makes me tired. Like I just need an app that works. Um, I'm also, I worry that I spend too much time building a to-do app versus like doing the things on my list, (laughs) you know, in a lot of ways, a form of procrastination. So I I try to not spend too much time on the app (laughs) and, and more time in the app doing stuff. What I love most people with these things or their complaint is they spend too much time trying new apps or configuring things. Yes. You spend too much time building one. So, <laughs> so when you're not getting things done, you're getting other big things done. Really. Yeah, that's 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 what I like to think. Yeah, at least that's what we'll say. We'll, we'll we'll think of it that way, right? That's my story. I'll stick to it. I think that from the sort of the descriptions that you've been giving me of to do dot text and, and kind of from from what I know about it a, a, a bit, like it just seems like the most like flexible system. Like mm-hmm. it, it just sounds like for you, it's you can kind of access it in so many different ways. Like you just mentioned all the different devices and the different ways that you can get to this file and append this file. Like it just seems of all of the systems I've heard of the most ubiquitous. Yeah, it's, it's very, very flexible and that's what I wanted. Um, but it's also very, very simple and too simple for a lot of people. So if you want due dates, if you want uh, reminders or push notifications or, or sort of all the, the calendars and ways to assign other people and collaborate, like it doesn't have any of those bells and whistles. It's just a plain, flat, this is what I have to do next uh, list, which a lot of people don't like. A lot of people have said, you know, I tried it and it's just too simple. I need, I need more. Um, the other, the aspect of to do text that I, um, that's important to me and that I like a lot and actually don't talk about very much and actually has a lot connects to think up is that I'm not storing your to do list anywhere. Like it's syncing to the cloud, but it's your cloud. It's your Dropbox mm-hmm. folder. 
right? So I'm not hosting, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saving people's to-do lists. I, I never see your to-do list. So what I love about the app is that this is your data in your personal cloud in this very flexible format that you can open up in any text editor around, uh, you know, under the sun. Like I feel like your to-do list is just a very, is a personal thing. Uh, your done list is a very sort of personal, private thing. And and so this idea of making apps that talk to your own personal cloud or live in your own personal cloud is very compelling to me um, because I think the pendulum is starting to swing a little bit back from hosted, from hosted, uh, centrally hosted web apps. Yeah, there's so many, you know, there's so many issues like Dropbox getting hacked and things like that, but you don't have to worry about that. You're leaving that up to the person. Like, I mean, you're looking at, if a system like that can go down, I mean, OmniFocus have their sync server, there's nothing stopping people getting in there. It's just nice to be, it's just not your responsibility. Right. People can choose to do it however they want to do it, but it's just not your thing to worry about. And yeah, yeah, and that that's also just very lends itself very well to the to the open source nature. Is, is that I'm not, you know, I don't need to have a sysadmin, you know, administering the server where everything syncs, you know, and people can work on it. And the Dropbox SDK just keeps getting better, and it handles things like revisions and and uh, file conflicts. You know, if you sync on, you know, if you're offline or come back online. So yeah, it, it's easier for a developer. And but you're right, there are there have been Dropbox has certainly had its issues, its security uh, issues, and every cloud provider does. Um, but but every you know, individual companies have those problems as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just one of the risks of syncing anything to the cloud. Now, if it's okay with you, Gina, I'd like to take a, a quick moment to thank our sponsor for this week. Absolutely. So um, our sponsor for this week is Squarespace.com, who give you everything you need to make an amazing website. Squarespace have continued to support, to support us. They've supported every single episode of Command Space so far, um, and we thank them for that. And if you enjoy what you hear, if you enjoy listening to these conversations, then you should go and sign up for a Squarespace trial and try it out. But let me give you some other reasons why. So Squarespace provides you with a fully hosted, completely managed environment for creating something online. So you can create any type of website, whether it be a blog, portfolio, business site, Squarespace give you all the tools that you need to do that. You don't have to worry about hosting, scaling, or integration with social services. You don't have to worry about hiring a designer using um, statistics packages. You don't have to worry about you know finding them and implementing them. You don't have to worry about buying iOS apps or Android apps because it's all built in. They have beautiful templates that feature responsive web design. They're really clean. They let your content do all of the talking. They have a very simple page building system called Layout Engine. It allows you to drag and drop blocks of content such as photos, videos, text, social media stuff and loads more. You get statistics, they're real-time analytics, they're built right into Squarespace, and you can even view them from the iOS and Android apps, which are fantastic. They also allow you to post to your site on the go as well. Squarespace sites never go down, it doesn't matter who links to you, Um, they just scale. I've never had any issues with my Squarespace site, no matter how fantastic my guests are, like Gina, if if she was to link to this, it's just not going to be an issue. They the the Squarespace site, the seventy decibel site is built on Squarespace and I've never had problems with it and that's one of the reasons I love it. They have twenty four seven customer support, they respond in minutes, they have live online workshops and great knowledge base articles to help give you all the tools and information you need to build your amazing site. You also get a uh, custom domain name. If you sign up for a year of Squarespace, and I'll talk to you about that in a moment, you get a free custom domain name if you sign up for one year up front, and you can easily link it to your site. And if you have a domain of your own, just a couple of clicks, and you can get that sorted out as well. 
So there's no credit card required to try out Squarespace. Support us and try out the service by going to squarespace.com forward slash 70 decibels. You can start your free trial there. If you decide to sign up, Squarespace starts at $10 a month for the standard plan and $20 a month for the unlimited plan. If you sign up for a year up front, you'll automatically get 20% off as well as custom domains. And if you sign up for two years up front, you'll get 25% off this price. If you decide to purchase, click enter an offer code below the pricing information at checkout and use the code 70 decibels one for an additional 10% off. So go check out Squarespace, everything you need to make an amazing website. So thank you for that, Gina. Sure. Thanks to Squarespace for Indeed. sponsoring. They are, they are a great supporter of the content that we do. Um, and we'll talk about podcasting in a minute. So um, I want to just touch on Android again very quickly. So you are a big Android fan girl. Is that, is that fair to say? <laughs> I guess that's fair to say. I, I, I love Android. I also happen to love iOS. Um, I, I tend to identify with Android a little bit more. I, I, I like that it's open source, and I think I've used it really kind of since its first release. So, I yeah, I, I'm an Android fan. I, I'm not a fangirl in the sense that I'm not, like, religious about it. I don't think that, that Android is clearly superior to every other mobile operating system, you know, ever. I mean, I think there are a lot of really good things about all the different choices, but... I, but I yes, I use Android. I, I host a show about Android now. Uh, I just started last night, and uh, yeah, I, I like the culture and the values around Android. But you've you've just come back from a break. I was I was reading a post on Smartware uh, yesterday. I think I read it, but it was posted on the seventh, which was Monday, mm-hmm. um, where you said that you've you've been using a 4S for for a year, mainly because you know one of the reasons you was looking at developing your iOS app. But you're back on Android now, and are you happy to be back? Does it feel like home again? It does. I, you know, Android actually has changed a lot uh, and since I was full-time on it. I, I always had the kind of Nexus 7, but my tablet isn't really my full-time. I really feel like your full-time device is the, whatever's in your pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and Android's cha- changed a lot. It, I do kind of feel like I'm home again. There are things about iOS that I, uh, particularly on the, on the iPhone, on the 4S, that I, I do miss. Uh, the camera is on the on the iPhone is is great and I, and I just had a baby girl and I, you know I just take pictures a lot and she she's fast she moves around a lot and it's tough to get that expression and, and I have to say that the that Android is not that doesn't have kind of the the, the great camera that the iPhone does but um but yeah, I miss. I really miss. I miss the home screen widgets. I miss the kind of custom, custom customizability of Android uh, and the things things that you can do with Android that that uh, and the, kind of the integration between apps and things that you can do that you can't do on iOS. So it does kind of feel like coming home to it again. One of my favorite um, lines in the article, which I'm going to put in our show notes, which people can find at 70decibels.com forward slash cmdspace. This is one of my favorite lines from from the piece. And on some level, I even miss the ugly, insane 152 checkbox apps that let you trigger a custom action when you're exactly 17 feet from home with the handset turned face down by saying the words kangaroo spider because they're possible. And that is one of that's one of my favorite things about Android. I go between um, I go between Android and iOS devices quite a lot, again, because of shows that we create here. Mm-hmm. And. The fact that you have the ability to look at apps like Tasker, which I think yes, may be the one that you're referring to, that's what I had in mind. Mm-hmm. Which looks like it's still on a G1 from a design perspective. It's <laughs> one of the most disgusting looking apps in the world. But you, with it, you have the ability to control so many things. And, and I'm not saying I want iOS to be like that, but I feel that there is a middle ground um, which yes. which which one of the two companies could fill? 
Yes, I agree. That Tasker is actually exactly the app I had in mind when I, when I wrote that line. And, um, you know, even things like saying, hey, I, I want to use a keyboard that's different than the Scott Stock keyboard uh, or use a different different browser. I think, I, and I'm not sure, can you change your default browser in, on iOS? I think you, you can can't. install Chrome can, on you iOS. You can install but them, but that's, that's one of the them. really maddening things. Is that's, that's what I'm talking about, the middle ground. So it's, yes. it doesn't have to be blown wide open where you can install a custom keyboard, which is very specific, you know, a very specific thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. But just being able to say, I prefer Chrome, and, and yes. you know, I just want to use that like I do in all my other devices, Please let me do that, and you can't, you know. And, yeah. and there's a there's an app that I've got my eye on, um, an email application called Mailbox. Yes, which I'm very looking, very much looking forward to. Um, but I know that I'm, and this was an issue I had with Sparrow with the Gmail application. They're not, they're still not the default app, and it drives me crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. The other thing I really like about Android is that share menu. How you can any app can can share out content to any other app, uh, and and I think you, you discussed this with um, with Marco. I'm not sure if you discussed this. Talked or Marco has discussed this on, on one of Marco's shows. He talked about how Instapaper was so difficult to you know share uh, a link from Instapaper to or to Instapaper, and how. But on Android, that's that's just built into the operating system. There's that share menu, and you just tap the share button, which is the same anywhere, and you just send it to whatever apps have registered themselves to the system. Um, so with to do text, you know, I, I enabled that, and so you can copy and paste any text and share it to a new task in, in to do text, and that's very simple. It doesn't require custom coding. It's and it stops developers having to find ways of hacking it in. You know, I can, you right. see, I'm seeing so many um, like photo applications now that are finding ways to talk to each other, and there's apps like Launch Center. Um, on, on iOS Launch Center Pro, where they're using URL schemes, it's just not—it's just not a great experience for for mm-hmm. people that really want to use their iPhones to get a lot of stuff done. I actually have Marco back on the show next week. Uh, oh, cool! And I'm going to be talking to him quite a lot about the magazine. And one of the things that he did in the magazine um, is he put like the Instapaper icon in there. Um, so he, you know, he found a way of of hacking his icon into the into the share menu but he can only do that in his own application and and right. is that that middle ground which is an issue yep but, you know it, it would be very you know there there is not there are not a lot of low-hanging fruit left this is something that john gruber says quite a lot about ios you know that there aren't many things now with ios where we can say this obviously needs to change you know like the notification center we need that needed to be stolen from android a long time before it was Mm-hmm. I was thinking um, a couple of days ago what it was like before Notification Center. You just had to search your phone for badges. Like, it was just <laughs> crazy. Like, and, you know, it was just from Android straight away. It was, it was already there. But, you know, but one of the things that is left is little customization things like that. You know, that's what's needed. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's no more copy, copy need copy paste support, right? Which we waited, waited for for a long time on exactly. iOS. Exactly. Um, I mean, and there's, you know, the, the, it seems that all other operating systems these days where they're closed have these sharing options like windows 8 they have their things i think it's called contracts mm-hmm. um, where you're able to send things to other applications and you know it just feels like it's something that seems outdated now not to be able to do things like that yeah agreed so i hope that i hope that they do more with it so let's talk about podcasting so you currently um are a host of this week in google and all about android on twit and in beta or beta um, on 5x5. Yep. 
That's correct. I can't believe I'm doing three shows. It seems like it seems like so much. You've nearly got enough to spin it off into your own network now. (laughs) So, did you just fall into this? Like, how did this start for you? I mean, obviously, Twig was first, and and how did it come about? How have you got to here? I did. I did just fall into it. I I call myself the accidental podcaster. Um, so. I feel bad saying this to you because I know you're building a podcasting network, <laughs> but I just, I ne- never got podcasts, just did, never got them. Uh, before I started doing Twig, I didn't listen to them. I thought they were for people who had long commutes uh, or, you know, liked listening to talk radio at the gym or just were really lonely. Um, I, I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not an auditory person. I'm not an auditory learner. Like I, I have to read and I read and write and that's how I'm sort of most effectively commu- communicate and, and take information in. Uh, I find that when I have talk radio or, or anything that's you know a podcast on I, I find it more distracting than <laughs> enjoyable so I always and, and, and it just always seemed like this kind of little thing that like other people did <laughs> to me <laughs> and then um but at the same time this was this was a couple of years ago I feel like we, we've done uh I don't know what episode of Twig we were on but I feel like it's three years in now but at the same time, I was, um, you know, I, when I was at Lifehacker, I would get, uh, just because of the, the profile of the site, I would get asked to do speaking gigs, like speaking engagements, public speaking at tech, tech conferences primarily. And public speaking was just like the bane of my professional existence. Um, I hated it. I, I would just kind of had this like very normal stage fright issue. Um, I, it would take me a really long time to prepare uh, for my talks. I, I hated kind of getting up on a stage with, with a slide deck and lecturing. I would, I would just get really nervous about what I'm going to wear. I'm, I'm kind of a homebody and I'm kind of a very routine person. So like even just getting out of my comfort zone, I'm an introvert. So like flying somewhere like, you know, having to socialize with a bunch of people I've never met and then getting on a stage and presenting a talk after seeing all these other smart people say really smart things. The whole thing was just awful. So mm. I would get these speaking and speaking engagement invitations and I'd either have to decline, which I felt terrible about, or I'd have to accept, which I'd feel even more terrible about because then I'd actually have to do it. <laughs> so Leo, Leo Laporte at Twit, uh, who I, I was aware of his work, but like I said, I wasn't a big podcast person. So I really didn't l- listen to a whole lot of his stuff. He he asked me if I wanted to do this week in Google, kind of kind of out of the blue, and, and I've actually never talked to him about how he, why he decided to ask me, or, or how. And so, like speaking, you know, public speaking, my immediate reaction was like, absolutely not, no way, not for me. Uh, but then I stopped myself and I thought, you know, this was maybe this is a way for me to get better at speaking, at public speaking, at just speaking in general. Um, this is, seems like a safe way to do it, right? I get to kind of sit in my office in front of my webcam, very safe, safe place, and do this kind of on a weekly basis. Because this is the other thing about public speaking is that I felt like in order to get good at it and, and, and in order to get over my fear, it was something that I had to do on a pretty regular basis. But the, the invitations were only kind of a couple, few times a year. Uh, so I felt like even when I, even if I nailed a talk, which I, I felt that very rarely, but you know, I had those one or two talks that I felt like I, I did really well at this and I felt like I was getting a handle on it. Then it would be months again, and, and I would fall out of practice. And so I was like, you know, this I have this sort of personal policy that if there's something that I'm really afraid of, I just have to do it. Um, so I've, you know, I've flown airplanes, I've gone skydiving, I've shot guns. Like I've, like this is it's like stuff that I'm afraid of. Just got to do it. So I was like, you know what? I am gonna push myself outside my comfort zone and do this show. Uh, it's not a lecture. It's not a slide deck. I don't have to get up on, on a stage. It seems like a safe way to get better at 
public speaking. So I started doing this week in Google with Leo and with Jeff, and now we're like, you know, it's we're almost through. I think almost two hundred episodes. One hundred and seventy nine episodes. You're right, yeah, <laughs> which is crazy, which is incredible. It turns out that my theory was sort of flawed, though. It, it, public speaking, uh, you know, on a stage with a slide deck is a very different thing than than yes. podcasting. Um, extremely different. But I have gotten a lot better at uh, articulating ideas and just having conversations in public. Leo streams his um, his his podcast. There's a there's a video stream, which was a little intimidating because I have to kind of clean up my office and get my webcam ready and actually put on some makeup. The Twig day is like the only day I actually put on makeup during the, during the week, uh, and kind of you know be aware that there are thousands, often thousands of people watching the live stream when we record, and then and then the download comes out later. So. Yeah, I, I, it was kind of one of these things that I just sort of fell into. And then, I don't know, it's like it, it – then I started listening to podcasts and realizing how much I, I really enjoyed hearing people uh, who I respect and admire and like kind of be in on their conversations. Um, so it just kind of blossomed from there. So you now um, – you have in beta on 5 by 5 Mm-hmm. Just you and Kevin Purdy, and you kind of talk about um, development and, and open source stuff there. And you've recently just joined as the third host on All About Android as well on, on Twit. On Twit, that's right. That's right. It's really cool to see the differences between 5x5 five five and Twit, uh, the way that, that Dan and Leo kind of do things differently. And, um, you know, in beta, is like Kevin and I are friends. We've been friends for a long time. We work together at Lifehacker, and that's just more kind of like two friends hanging out chatting um and and there's more flexibility on five by five we switch our schedule around a lot more whereas twit is has a much more established kind of production process they've got this giant beautiful studio they've got the streaming web video they've got tons of producers and editors uh i'm on a panel with with leo and jeff and then we often have guests so it's a totally different format so it's 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 neat to be able to f- experiment with the different approaches it's interesting, sort of. I've I've followed Leo since the start. I've followed Dan since the start. You know, they're the my kind of inspiration to getting into this stuff. And it's interesting to see how people move along. Like Dan is about to move into a studio of his own, and it's funny to watch. You know how how someone starts and then they continue to to build up, and it's it's interesting. Like the we we operate in a new industry and one that I think is starting to find um, more ground now. And yeah, it has before. Um, and I mean, do you still feel that podcasting is for lonely people, or do you feel <laughs> different about it now? <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I now that now that I have a, a newborn, I you know I listen to podcasts when I'm while I'm feeding her. I don't, I don't like to have the kind of the TV on all the time because she's just an infant, and that's just a little little too much, and uh, expose her to that, that that kind of advertising and the, that 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 type of thing. So I listen to podcasts around the house a lot more when I'm care- when I'm caring for my daughter, and uh, it's not just for lonely people. Although I have to tell you, the thing about the podcasting format that I really still don't like is that I, there's still part of me that feels like it doesn't exist. Like no one said it unless it's in text. Um, like I, I, I come from this kind of old school web uh, line of thought where it's like I've got sort of SEO on the brain. It's yeah. like I want to be able to Google the statement that, that Mike said at some point. And, and podcasts just don't – unless you have somebody transcribing every word that people are saying on your shows, um, there's just still not an easy way to 
kind of bookmark uh, a place in a podcast um, or it just it feels like there's a permanence to blog posts or, or just just articles and text on the web that podcasts don't have. And I miss that sometimes. Yeah, that uh, is a definite issue. I mean, and I've seen over the years, many companies and podcast producers try to do something about it. But there just isn't a good solution. There is there is not a um, cost effective solution to getting it down. And I mean, I've seen companies try and have podcasts search through audio. It just doesn't work. And it is an issue because, like, even me, the guy who's recording the stuff, I don't remember everything of what I was speaking about a couple of weeks ago. Yep. But if I wrote it, I can just search it. But that's not possible here. And and it is a problem with, as you said, once once the show is, has been recorded and somebody's listened to it, they'll archive it and most likely never listen to it again. Um, and that's the same with blog posts. But if somebody wants to reference it, they can and because it's, e- it's easy to, to do that. I mean, you can find the article if you know what the article is and then just search on the page or you can just search Google. We can't do that. And it, and it is an issue with our medium. And it's what makes it more like entertainment than like reference material. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, there are times when, when someone will say to me, Oh, Hey, what do you, what have you been up to lately? You know, someone online is like, what do you, what do you do? And I could be like, well, here's an hour long <laughs> MP3, you know, of me talking with Mike about what I'm up to. And that just seems insane to point someone to it, to an hour long show as a, as a reference bit, you know, you kind of have to have to write that stuff out. Problem is that I, because I'm doing these shows, uh, you know, all about Android and Twig and, and, and in beta, like I, t- I talk about the things that are on my mind on the shows, but then I've sort of lose the motivation. I feel like I've gotten the thoughts out there and I've processed them and then I sort of lose the motivation to do, to do the writing, which I think, so I think the podcasting has cannibalized some of my, my blogging mojo. It's also, as blogging was, it's difficult to explain to people that don't understand what you do. Like yes. People say to me, so what is this thing that you do? And like, I record podcasts and they're like, what are that? What are they? And I'm like, well, they're kind of like internet radio shows. And then they say, well, what do you talk about? I said, well, technology. And they're like, what? And like, it, because <laughs> it, at the point that that person doesn't understand podcasts, I can't explain to them what I talk about. It's already too late for them. Right. <laughs> because they're like, right. well, how can you talk about technology? I don't understand. I don't get it. And why is everyone in America? I, I don't understand. And it's, <laughs> it's, very, it's very difficult. Um, my grandparents, that we have a, like a family joke where um, my grandparents were concerned during the WikiLeaks um, scandal that I was somehow going to get in trouble. <laughs> because at that time I was recording a show with one of my friends Stephen who I record um, another show on our network called the 512 Podcast we did a show called Ungenius where we found funny or interesting Wikipedia articles we learnt about them and we told people about them mm-hmm. um, and because they knew that I did that they somehow thought that I was going to end up in prison. WikiLeaks. Uh, yep. Clearly, so you were leaking I pages was, from the wiki. Yep. And that's what they thought I was doing. Um, <laughs> and and to this day, sort of in my family, we refer to podcasting as WikiLeaking because <laughs> that is what my, my nan and granddad understand in their brain as to what I'm doing. And it's, it's a very – this is the issue because there is nothing like this. I mean, because it's – People have always been able to write, but people have not always been able to record audio. You needed a studio. Right. And the average human could not do that. And so it's 
it, people can't understand that I am able to record my voice and others are able to listen. And it's, it's, we're still in this transitional period. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I see a, a lot of big companies and existing media organizations seeing that podcasting is part of their marketing strategy. So that's how you know that it's taking off. Everybody right, thinks they need a podcast now. Every movie has a podcast and they always get featured on iTunes. And mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My, my, my family is particularly sort of my el- more elderly relatives. Like they just didn't understand like blogging. They didn't know what blogging was. And, and so, but, but they sort of had this sense that I was like successful. Uh, but it wasn't until I published first, it was, I published an article in popular science, which my, my grandfather-in-law was subscribed to. So he mm-hmm. saw my name in print and it was like, aha, like, Oh, okay. So Gina really is a writer. <laughs> and then a book doing a book was like, like, oh, that, okay, Gina must be really successful. I think the, the, the oatmeal, uh, the the cartoonist just did a cartoon. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. It was about content creation online. But there's yep. this one panel where it just says, like, where it's, it's 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 him, you know, explaining to someone what he does, like that he draws comics on the web. And and there's this one part where it just says, like, your career plus the internet equals sad, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is an excellent, an excellent, excellent. Um, comic that we were all retweeting because anybody that creates things online understands yeah. these things. Yes. So the, the comic will be in the show notes and it's called Some Faults and Musings About Making Things for the Web. It's the name of the comic and it's, uh, it is a good one. So before, before I let you go today, I want to talk about your main gig at the moment, which is ThinkUp. And we've, we've spent 50 minutes talking and we've not even spoken about the, the thing that you do day to day. So what is ThinkUp? ThinkUp is my baby. ThinkUp is a is a is a web application that I've been building for two three years now. It's a it, my fancy the fancy term is the fancy phrase is it's a it's a social data insights engine. So it's a it's an analytics tool for your social your social network activity. Um, it's it's a web application that you install on your own web server. So it's 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 pretty geeky. It's the the, the target target audience is for people who have been actively building their audience on various social networks. So anybody that's got over, say, a thousand followers on Twitter, like, like you do. Um, people who are, you know, indie creators, people who are promoting their Kickstarter or like getting their YouTube channel off the ground or, or they're writing or building their podcasting network or people who are building an audience. Um, so you install ThinkUp uh, on a host or, you know, we've got a variety of, of launchers that we're working on for EC2 or for your web hosting uh, provider of choice. And you, you authorize your accounts, your Twitter account, your Facebook account, Google+. And the app captures your um, – excuse me. Sorry, excuse me. Okay. It captures your posts and your likes and your links and your favorites, kind of all the things that you do across these networks. And then lets you know uh, when something interesting has happened. I know that, that sounds kind of vague. <laughs> but the, the kind of the – what brought me to start building this, and I started building it uh, a long time ago, and I, it, back then it was called Twitalytic because my idea was that it was like a Twitter analytics and, uh, dashboard, but it now it's sort of named ThinkUp and, and extends to different networks, is that like we've all kind of elected ourselves or volunteered for these like data entry jobs. I think that was a, a Louis C.K. line uh, on, these, on these social media, you know, social networking uh, sites. And we do it to connect with others and to share. Uh, but for people who are sort of trying to build an audience, you know, you spend a lot of time sort of inputting a lot of data. And once you reach a threshold of activity, certain followers, like 
the the tools themselves sort of fall down. So so Twitter's notification emails that someone has followed me are sort of useful useless at this point. Like I turned them off a long time ago. Um, because I've sort of I've had the the privilege of having these platforms like the shows and 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 the blog, and I've got a bigger audience now, and so I can't tell you know when someone has followed me that's that I you know that is that's interesting or that I should kind of pay attention to. So that's that's the kind of thing that ThinkUp will do. ThinkUp will say, "Hey, someone with three times the amount of followers that you has 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 retweeted your tweet," or "Hey, like you've got a couple of interesting people who have followed you. You know, check, check, here here they are." Or, um, you know, this link that you tweeted in the past week, like this, this got more clicks than, than any, any other link that you tweeted in, in the past week or the past month or the past year. So we just released ThinkUp 2.0. ThinkUp 1.0 was, was a very static kind of dashboard with charts. It's kind of like Google, like imagine Google Analytics for Twitter, Foursquare, Facebook, Google+. It was just a dashboard and there were these charts and it would show you your follower counts and, and that kind of thing. And that, and that was fine. I mean, that was the beginning kind of, of, of uh, the first iteration. But ThinkUp 2.0 is now we, we've, we've thrown out the dashboard completely and we've got this kind of news feed of like alerts letting you know, hey, this is something that matters. You know, you've got this crazy spike in followers, a uh, bigger spike than you've seen in the past 30 days. Uh, or, you know, this was your most popular post a year ago. Uh, even even kind of looking back type type of things, or you got added to these ten lists, and here are uh, here's the word that people use to describe you in their list names the most, that kind of thing. So, um, I have really enjoyed building ThinkUp mostly because I wanted to have a central like like my own like uh, database of all my social interactions that I kind of owned and controlled. I mean, I, I think that we all sort of pump all this data into into these systems, you know, likes and links and shares and our social, you know, our friends and followers. And I think that the companies that host the, these networks uh, get a lot of value out of that data through yes. advertisers, advertising and other means. But I think that users should be able to get more interesting data out of their own data. Like I think there's a, there's a lot of um, insights that you can get as a person uh, that can help you sort of become a better participant on the network. So I, I know there are a lot of like analytics tools that are like, get more followers now that are sort of really <laughs> gimmicky and targeted toward people just, you know, tr- you know, not trying to become, you know, we, we want to help you sort of become a better participant on the network and see, see the interesting things and be able to respond to people uh, and, and, and add content that that matters that's more meaningful what are, you, what are your goals with think up where do you, where do you see it going well goal is to 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 help people who have big audiences um get more insights out of their activity so connect connect to people and 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 get better at um at, at sharing content and to help people who don't have as big an audience sort of reach the people that do have a big audience. So we've got this sort of like 1% situation going on in these networks, right? There's like people who have tons and tons of followers. They're the 1%. And then there's like the 99% who don't have a lot of followers. And um, part of ThinkUp's kind of goal is to close that gap a little bit and to help uh, to help the, the, the one percenters, you know, sort of get the, you know, help the people who are sort of up and coming um, get there. And for the people who are the one percent who are who, you know have have the big audience connect with their get their message out and connect with their uh, <clears throat> followers more effectively, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And, and do do you? I mean, Twitter is obviously the biggest um, 
social network that people use in ThinkUp, I would imagine, uh, because it's the one that I guess us geeks love the most uh, for our sins at times. Are you concerned um, about the fact that, you know, looking at the, the changes that Twitter have made, are you concerned that they could just revoke your access? Yeah, I mean the Twitter the Twitter API ch- changes were definitely uh, concerning. Um, the reason why I'm not too concerned right now is because ThinkUp is uh, kind of an insights engine versus it's an insights engine versus a client. It's not a client, right? I mean Twitter's made really clear that they do not want third party developers making Twitter clients. That that's that area is saturated. They're good. They have their official Twitter clients. They don't want to create confusion. Confusion. They they enforce the, the token limit amongst other things. Um, but the, you know they put up the quadrant uh, of the, the types of Twitter apps in, the, in their blog post, and which was which was much much maligned. But we're we're very clearly not in the ThinkUp is very clearly not in the client uh, area. So I'm I'm not concerned they're going to revoke our token access uh, because you know we're duplicating functionality they already provide. Twitter's Connect tab uh, and their even their analytics dashboard uh, are not just don't don't provide the, the information that that ThinkUp does. So I think I think we're adding value there. The, the broader question of like can Twitter change their rules and and put us you know squeeze us out you know revoke our access or or render us uh, you know meaningless. I mean that's that's something. That that's true for every, not just Twitter, but for every network. I mean, any any time that you're using an API, you're you're sort of at the, you're making, they're taking the leap and being going up to, you know, going making taking the risk that you're gonna uh, gonna have to comply with with their rules. But that's that's true of using any platform. I mean, I, I take that risk when I sell an app in the Play Store, or uh, even more so in the App Store. Uh, I think that we can still kind of use this data. I mean, it's something I can I'm concerned about, but I don't think it should stop you from. Uh, try and innovate. Yeah, I mean that would that would be a shame. I mean, we've at least got to try and show them why these things are useful. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do, do you think that something's going to come along and overtake Twitter? Like, do you think that it's going to be around f- five, ten, fifteen years in the future? <sighs> five, ten, or fifteen I mean, history, years. History history has kind of shown that it won't be, but yeah, history has kind of shown that, hasn't it? Um, I I always think that there's room for you know a new upstart to do it differently and better i mean i think you know uh it seemed as if yahoo had web search kind of locked up right until google came along um so and i i kind of think it's it's a similar thing i mean right now i think we have a lot of choices with our social networks i mean you know the twitter i would say twitter and facebook are the two main choices right google plus is google's trying with google plus i don't know how much they're actually succeeding I tend to think that I have this very optimistic view of the future that that something new and cool is going to come along and do it do something differently and and maybe overtake the the sort of established uh, the established apps and uh, I I would like to see Twitter stick around because I actually really like it despite their recent what I would consider missteps uh, but I don't know I don't know if it's going to be around in ten years. Do you think I mean, what, what do you? Do you use app.net? Like, what is your feeling about that service? I signed up for the developer version of app.net, uh, and uh, and I got onto it. I registered my, my username. I'm um, just Ginger Panny there as well. And um, I, I forget about it. I, I forget yeah. to visit. I, I forget to go back. I think that I'm suffering from purchase, and this is just a personal thing, from a little bit of a social, social networking uh, saturation point where it's just like I, I try to actively use – I actively
effectively use Twitter, uh, Facebook, Google+, and Foursquare, which seems like a lot. I, I, some days I'm like, I can't believe that I spent all this time like posting things to these these different networks. Um, so so I just I didn't see the activity on App.net. That I saw a lot of developers on App.net, which are kind of my people, which I really I really enjoy. Um, but I just I have a bigger I, I just reach a lot more people on Twitter, so I find myself still going back to Twitter. I really like that Dalton is is trying something with App.net. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think it's interesting um, attempt. I tend to think that he. I, I wish that he had gone a little further with it. You know, like I wish that App.net was open source. I wish that it was federated. You know, like he's like it's the open alternative to Twitter, but open just means that there's no restrictions on the API, like that. The, the API is restricted, restricted the way that Twitter's API is. And that, that feels like a broad interpretation of the word open, uh, although you could do a series of shows on, the, on, on people's interpretation of the word open, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the truth, <laughs> including Google's. <laughs> yes, exa- including Google's, absolutely. So I love to see things like App.net um, bloom because I think it's it's important to see, you know, I think that App.net really articulated a frustration that um, a certain community had with with Twitter, uh, but I'm not I'm not sure if it's going to last in its current state for for a long time. I mean, just just the cost uh, alone, you know, would would I think keep keep a lot of people out. It's definitely interesting to see where it goes and what it morphs into. When I spoke to to Dalton on this show, um, he, the way that he was intimating to me was kind of like they don't necessarily see it as a Twitter competitor, but a back-end system for many different types of applications. So we'll have to wait and see. Maybe the problem is the way we're thinking about it and the box that we're putting it in. Um, And maybe once developers start to just embrace it and try and do new things with it, then we'll see some more interesting products come out of that. We'll have to wait and see. That's a really good point. Well, it wasn't my point. It was Dalton's, but I'll take it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, Gina, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, Why don't you tell people, what's a good place to find you? Where, Where should they go? Uh, best place to find find me and what I'm up to is uh, just ginatrapani.org. It's got links to my blog and to my various uh, social uh, networks pages where you can you can connect me. However, whichever one you prefer, uh, email me from there and just and see a link to to my different different projects. Uh, yeah, and I'm on Twitter at Gina Trapani and. Uh, same same thing on on app.net although i i, I confess I'm, i haven't been checking app.net for very much uh google plus is i'm pretty active there just because of this week in google and all of it, andrew that my people are there and uh facebook to a lesser extent indeed indeed so yes go follow gina there you can find me on social networks i'm i mike i am yke on pretty much all of them um as i mentioned earlier next week we're going to be joined by mr marco arment so i hope that you will tune in for that thanks again to gina for joining us um it's been a pleasure gina i hope that we will be able to talk again sometime in the future it would be thank you so much for having me on the show i love the show i really uh really appreciate i really appreciate you having me i've enjoyed it thank you very much so until next week thank you all for listening um so thank you and bye-bye